Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, a new survey finds most of us want to live to be a hundred years old or more. But that could be a problem since we also know that most people haven't saved enough for their golden years as it is already. We'll take a closer look. Also this morning, to your help, Dare to Dream. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is recommitting to creating more and better treatment options for children impacted by blood cancers. And with Americans looking to make up for lost time in the travel department, they're becoming more adventurous than ever, and a growing number of Airbnb hosts are capitalizing on that trend. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, July 6th, 2022. Today is International Kissing Day. Also National Fried Chicken Day. Umbrella Cover Day. Take your webmaster to lunch day today. Virtually hug a virtual assistant day. So tell Alexa you're giving her a hug. How would she react? Tell Siri or Alexa you're going to give her a hug. (laughs) Don't get fresh with me. And National Air Traffic Control Day. Think about it. Where would we be without the uh, air traffic controllers? They do an incredible job and a very difficult job. So big salute to the air traffic controllers today. So uh, you know how this is a really interesting story I saw in the uh, newswire. You know how uh, during the pandemic, we really came to rely on virtual services, whether we're talking about... um, Zoom meetings for work or virtual doctor's visits or, um, you know, remote, remote work, remote school, um, delivery, grocery delivery, that kind of thing for some people that didn't want to go out. So now that the pandemic is waning and many of these virtual services were things that had been around for, for a while, but no, you know, a lot of people had, average people had not used these services. Maybe they weren't available. Maybe they just hadn't been used very often. A new poll finds that many of us, though, do not expect to continue to rely on these services moving forward. Now that the pandemic is what, because this is one of the things that became a big talking point during the pandemic. Would these Things that we discovered that maybe made our lives in some ways a little bit more convenient, certainly more convenient to navigate the pandemic. Would we continue to avail ourselves of these uh, services moving forward? Close to half of U.S. adults in a new Associated Press Nork Center for Public Affairs research poll said that they are not likely to attend virtual activities or receive virtual health care or have groceries delivered or use curbside pickup after the pandemic and over uh, after the pandemic is over which is pretty much over right now in terms of the restrictions uh, on the things we do but only less than 30% said that they are very likely to use any of those at least some of the time but at the same time close to half also said it would be good if those virtual options for things like healthcare and community events and activities or religious services, church or virtual church services, half said, half in the poll said that it would be good for those things to continue, but less than 30% 
said that they were likely to avail themselves of those virtual services themselves, which I thought was kind of interesting. It's good that we have them, but I don't expect to use them. Uh, The uh, director of the Center for the Connected Consumer at the George Washington School of Business, Donna Hoffman, tells the Associated Press, rather than this either or, she says, I think we are more likely to be facing a hybrid future. People have found convenience in some of these virtual options that just makes sense. So just remains to be seen how many of these virtual services we will use moving forward. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Some of the other most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. Uh, This is research from the Ohio State University. They have found that neighborhoods which are home to more dogs, the more dogs there are in your neighborhood, the less crime you have in that neighborhood, including violent crime. Murder and assault, not just like robbery and things like that, but, you know, violent crime. The authors of the study for the Ohio State University found that overall communities are safer when people have more trust in their neighbors, which kind of goes without saying, I guess. But crime dropped even further in neighborhoods with both high levels of trust and more dogs. (laughs) You have more dogs, you have less crime. Now, Immediately, you might think the reason for that is that, you know, guards are are good guard dogs, right? Guard dogs, guard dogs. That's kind of the mindset. However, researchers say that you don't actually have to have a watchdog per se to keep your streets safe. Their results, and this is what I thought was interesting about this, their results suggest that more people walking their dogs puts more eyes on the street as de facto patrols for the street, which discourages criminals from committing both violent and nonviolent crimes. Because more people are out walking their dogs, more people are watching what you're doing, it's harder to commit crimes, so they just move on to another neighborhood. How about that? So you want to uh, reduce crime in your neighborhood, uh, get a dog and encourage your neighbors to do the same. Research from the Ohio State University. Speaking of dogs, a New Jersey dog and her owner are now the holders of a new world record. And world records are set every day. A lot of times I just kind of ignore them, move on, because some of them are really stupid. But this uh, is impressive. Uh, New Jersey dog and her owner are now holders of the record for the world's longest walk. Speaking of walking your dog, Tom Tursich was inspired to walk around the world after the passing of a good friend. He began his journey in 2015, and uh, a few months into his walk around the world, he adopted Savannah. And from there, the pair journeyed across six continents and 38 countries together. The trip took seven years to complete, and Mr. Tursich says he plans to write a memoir about his adventure with Savannah. How about that? That's that's an that's impressive. Come on, come on, puppy. You want to come on, Savannah? You want to go for a walk? Uh, The dog's all excited, and then the dog realizes we're gonna walk around the world. What? Sure, how enthused the dog was for this, but 
<laughs> it is a world record. That is impressive. Oh, uh, one other dog-related story, by the way. Um, did you happen to see the uh, hot dog eating contest on the Fourth uh, of July? Joey Chestnut won another hot dog uh, eating title. Um, but this is there was some controversy because about halfway through the contest on Coney Island, a protester rushed the stage. Uh, it was an anti-meat protester, and uh, he was quickly dispatched. Joey's chestnut actually put the guy in a headlock, threw him off to the side, and then kept eating. Now, what's interesting about this is that the betting line for the hot dog eating champion was 74.5 hot dogs. That was the over-under on how many hot dogs Joey Chestnut was expected to consume, 74.5. And the fact that he was interrupted by the protester that he had to deal with means that he was, that slowed him down, and he was only able to finish with 63 hot dogs. Still enough to win, but nowhere close to the expected over-under. And so... Now, apparently, uh, those who bet the over-under are getting a refund. So, because of the extenuating circumstances, they're just wiping out all of those bets, and it becomes, uh, I guess, like a push. But uh, I, that's, that's only appropriate. I got to think about this. I mean, uh, you can't really start the competition over. You know, I mean, if you're if you're running a track race and somebody, you know, runs out in the middle of uh, of the track or if you're on a uh, uh, in the middle of a football game or a soccer game or whatever, and somebody you know runs out in the middle of the field, you can stop the game and you can either start over, you can start a race over, or you can pick up where that harder to do that with a hot dog eating contest. So uh, what do you do? Uh, they just kept right on going. Again. I just thought that was kind of interesting. And um, one other item here among the first things you need to know, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. Apparently, a lot of competitive Scrabble players are quitting the game after hundreds of so-called offensive words have been banned from the game. More than 400 words and terms including racial slurs, sexuality, and gender insults, and so on, have been taken off the game's official words list. And according to one player who wrote about this uh, online, Jonathan Maitland, many people are quitting the game because of the changes. Uh, Jonathan says it's hard to find anyone in the Scrabble community who favors this ban. That doesn't mean we approve of any of the words that have been stricken, but and, and among them are some pretty vile racial slurs, but the words can't be uninvented, and he says playing them in a private word game is very different from using them in any other context. Uh, author Daryl Francis, who is one of the co-compilers of the official Scrabble words list, spoke about the ban. And he actually himself quit the game in protest because these words have now been banned. Uh, while the owner of the Scrabble game, Mattel, has not 
issued an official statement on the banning of these words from the official list. The company's global head of games, Ray Adler, is not buying the argument that they are just words. Words, after all, have meaning, he says. And he added this, and I think this is a uh, solid argument, at least something you have to consider. Uh, Mr. Adler says, can you imagine any other game where you can score points and win by using a racial epithet? That's a good point. That's a good point. Hey, I won big using the N-word. That's not what, you know, that's not what you want to uh, have your game be all about. So anyway, big controversy in the Scrabble universe. There you go, some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started. This is ONN. I'm Dave James on the Ohio News Network. Heavy rain overnight prompted flood warnings for areas of the state that included Marion, southward through Columbus and westward toward Springfield, and southeast of Columbus through Lancaster and into Hocking County. Some areas had received three to five inches of rain, with more expected, creating possibly life-threatening situations. And it could get worse. Significant rain is expected for parts of Ohio clear into Friday. President Joe Biden will be in Cleveland today. Russ Mitchell with Owen and affiliate WKYC-TV in Cleveland reports. We're told the president will visit Max Hayes High School along with Labor Secretary Marty Walsh and a host of Ohio Democratic leaders. It is expected the president will unveil new details about the American Rescue Plan and ways to fix problems with multi-employer pension plans. I'm Russ Mitchell. Investigators have released the names of the pilot and passenger injured in a small plane crash on the southeast side of Akron Monday night. The pilot and owner of the plane is 71-year-old Kenneth Jones of Mogador. The passenger, 63-year-old Lisa Baum of Uniontown. Both are said to be in serious but stable condition. The plane was en route from Pennsylvania, scheduled to land at Akron Fulton Airport at 7 p.m. The plane went down shortly after 7 p.m. in a parking lot near the Higher Community Learning Center. Authorities previously reported it suspected the plane ran out of fuel. Kate Burdett, ONN News. And I'm Dave James on the Ohio News Network. Well, nearly 7 in 10 Americans say they want to live to the age of 100. But according to a new study from Edward Jones and Age Wave, that could present a problem. I mean, you do the math and that could mean three decades or more of retirement and already... We are worried about outliving our retirement savings. So joining us are Ken Sella, uh, Principal of Branch Development at Edward Jones, and Dr. Ken Dykewald, Founder and CEO of Age, Ra- Age Wave. Uh, Ms. Sella, I'll start with you. We referenced the longevity and the new journey of retirement study. Clearly, many people believe that becoming a centenarian is realistic. I'm not sure that would have been the case a generation ago. So I would assume that means that today's retirees view retirement differently than the way their parents did. Is that the case? You bet. And and it's those kind of findings that are exactly why we did this research. It really helps us to go to school on our clients and better understand what people's needs and priorities are not just theirs, but also for their family and across generations. So um, as we've done this work, uh, we found that the results have been so compelling that we just want to democratize the information and bring it out to folks. Uh, This idea of longevity and other key forces that we've identified that are widely available in the report that you're referencing 
are beginning to converge to redefine retirement. Um, we think this is true not just today, but for many years to come. Um, and a few of the headlines that you just shared are, are really astounding. As people are living longer um, and, and want to know what that longevity means to them, um, they they need help. And, and you know, when you when you think about this idea that you mentioned of people wanting to live to age 100, which by the way, seven in ten people told us that, um, that's really different and uh, quite astounding. The ideal length of retirement, three decades, wow. Um, and people do say this isn't their parents' retirement. It's a whole new chapter of life. One, that they want to be filled with fun, enjoyment, uh, new possibilities, and also view this stage as an opportunity to reinvent themselves beyond what they were at work, what they were in raising their family, and now it's a whole new chapter for them that really uh, allows them to become what they were meant to be and to follow their purpose. And uh, Dr. Dykewald, you uh, actually uh, break that down into what you call the four stages of retirement. Explain. Yeah, I think for our moms and dads and maybe grandparents' generations, they kind of rolled into retirement and viewed themselves to be within a few years of the having their batteries wear out. Today, as people look around and they saw 99-year-old Betty White and they see Mick Jagger still going strong at <laughs> 78, and yeah. there's Tom Cruise at 59, people are starting to realize that there are stages to retirement. So we've named the first one anticipation, and that's the 10 years before and as the word says, people are still working full time, but they're thinking about what they want to do and where they want to go and who they want to be once they reach their retirement. And they realize there's lots of choices. The second stage is the first couple of years into retirement. We've named it liberation and disorientation. And it's both. It's a great freedom. I made it. You know, I can sleep late. I can do what I want. But also, who am I and what's my new purpose? And then people find their groove in a way. In the next 15 years, we've named that reinvention. As people get used to the pattern of not working and maybe they downshift their homes or they move to be closer to family members or they get more involved in the church or they form a rock band. And you're seeing all those kinds of things going on. And then the fourth stage of retirement, which is usually at around 80, the age of 80, we've named reflection and resolution. And there we're seeing that people are being mindful about what kind of legacy they want to live, leave not only to their family, but to their communities as well. And with those various stages of retirement, you also find that there are specific habits uh, that successful retirees share. What are some of those? Well, one of the great things about this Edward Jones study is that rather than only studying people who are struggling, you know, you began the interview by saying, boy, what a challenge right. of living to 100. We're finding that quite a large number of people think of it as a great triumph, and they're kind of exhilarated. In fact, they feel better than they've ever felt in many ways. Again, as long as you've got your the money side of the equation well worked out and you, you've got a good plan in place. But what some of the... I, Habits of highly successful retirees, they take great care of their health, they stay very socially involved, they are on purpose, and they usually find a new purpose after work, which sometimes takes a little bit of work. Fourth, high attention to financial strategy. And fifth, willingness to course correct and make changes as life grows curveballs their way. 
You know, one of the uh, interesting data points that I saw in some of the uh, the notes and the overview that I had here uh, of this uh, report uh, was the point that retirees in the study said that they started saving for retirement at age 38 on average, but in retrospect, they say they should have started nearly a decade earlier at age 29. And I thought, you know, part of that is, you know, hindsight being 2020 and, you know, you can never have enough is you can never start too early. Um, but Mr. Sella, what advice would you have for people to do today in order to plan early to be able to have those fulfilling three decades of retirement? Government requires early action and a strong financial foundation. And that starts with saving earlier in life and maximizing savings throughout your high income years where you're, you're really able to do those kinds of things. You also find that successful retirees stay the course with staying out of debt or minimizing debt um, everywhere that they can. And the third piece is to avoid early withdrawals from retirement accounts. Successful retirees on many occasions, understanding the time value of money. And and so what we also find is that people want to take a holistic view. And, and that's really uh, part and parcel to their financial plan. They, they've got uh, the money that they need to pay for their health care. They want to make sure they don't become a financial burden on the family if they have relationships with them. And they want to have the financial resources to carry out their purpose. So they think about those those three pillars and purpose, the financial side really underpins all three of those. And we believe we can help people aspire to a successful retirement by showing them retiree role models who are active and engage their communities and their family and their friends. Uh, they're living purposeful lives and are making a positive difference. Uh, oftentimes, uh, healthy habits, uh, like Ken talked about, um, are really the underpinned uh, successful retirement. And as people find their passion and their interest, what ultimately happens is they end up living a purpose-filled retirement, one that's highly satisfying. And that's what I think a lot of people really... I think we might have lost uh, Ken there, but uh, again, really interesting data uh, there in the longevity and the new journey of retirement study uh, from Edward Jones and AgeWave. Uh, Ken Sella, principal of branch development at Edward Jones. Dr. Ken Dykewald, uh, founder and CEO of AgeWave with us this morning. Where do we get uh, more information uh, about this report and uh, really a lot of thought starters, if nothing else there, for folks who are starting to think about this? You bet. Uh, you can go to edwardjones.com forward slash new retirement. Gentlemen, thank you both for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, leukemia is the most common cancer diagnosed in young people under the age of 20, but treatments for this type of cancer are often harsh and outdated, and those who do survive are at risk of experiencing long-term effects and life-threatening complications. To help change this, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is expanding its Dare to Dream project, a commitment to pediatric blood cancer patients and their families. And joining us is LLS Chief Medical Officer Dr. Gwen Nichols and the mother of a pediatric cancer survivor, Courtney Addison, representing the families in this struggle. And Courtney, I understand your uh, son, Caden, was what five when this impacted your family i can't even imagine what was that journey like 
Yeah, so um, my son was diagnosed uh, with acute lymphoblastic leukemia in March of 2020 uh, when he was only three years old. Mm. And shortly after we found out that he was diagnosed, we found out that he had a rare type of leukemia that only happens in about 3% of cases. So while there was still success that he would be cured of this, that success rate did go down a little bit. And not only did that go down, but the type of treatment that he received became more intensive um, because it needed to be more aggressive to attack this type of leukemia. So it was a very scary time. As you can imagine, we were completely devastated. Um, And we had to help Caden through, you know, surgeries and treatment, um, as well as several overnight hospital stays, um, some which were very scary um, because he had some pretty life-threatening side effects due to the treatment he had to receive. And talk about how the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society uh, became involved in, in your case and impacted your case and uh, how that led to you uh, being a champion for the work that, that they are doing. Yeah, so I actually uh, found out about LLS uh, shortly after Caden's diagnosis. A friend of mine introduced me to them and I got involved with some of their fundraising efforts. Um, But as I was doing that, I learned more about all of the incredible things that they're doing. And one of the things that really helped me as a mom, um, when I felt like I had no sense of control, there was nothing that I could really do besides supporting Caden through this, but they also provide tons of educational resources. And so when you feel like you have no control, one of the things that I leaned on was educating myself. And so LLS has a ton of educational resources that helped prepare me as a mom to go into that doctor's office and really advocate for my son. He was only three. He couldn't advocate for himself. So that was my role to go in there and make sure that he was getting treatment. And, um, you know, we were addressing some of these side effects that he was getting. And so I was very thankful for the organization for that, as well as just their emotional support uh, throughout this entire journey. Now, uh, Dr. Nichols, we mentioned the Dare to Dream project. What is the importance uh, from a medical standpoint of expanding uh, your organization's commitment to pediatric blood cancer patients? Well, LLS is, I think, rightfully proud that we've had great research for over 70 years. But what that research has led to is lots of new developments in adult blood cancers, but really only a handful in pediatric blood cancers. And kids are our most most precious resource. So to me, even though I'm an adult oncologist, this seems backwards. And we need to double down our efforts both to research the specific biology of childhood cancers, but to provide more education, more support, and importantly, to help the clinical trial efforts to to collaborate, to work together so that we can answer questions more quickly and bring less toxic more targeted therapies to children with blood cancer. Again, we talk about the goal of transforming uh, treatment and care for kids with these forms of cancer, such as Caden. Uh, how How is that different from, kind of help us, the layperson understand why it is not just uh, a, a, a smaller dose or a smaller uh, treatment, uh, you know, for smaller people. It's it's more than than <laughs> that. Well, that's a great question, and I think 
that has been what we've done yeah. to make the progress we've made so far. But you heard from Courtney about the cost of that from a toxicity point of view on a little person's body. And more importantly, we understand now that the biology of childhood cancer is very different. What causes leukemia in a six-year-old is quite different than what causes leukemia in a 60-year-old. And so we need to help develop therapies for those abnormalities that are unique to kids, not just take smaller doses of new therapies that we've developed for adults. We still want to do that, Mm -hmm. but we don't want to do that exclusively. And so that's what the Dare to Dream project is and what our pedal master clinical trial is. It's a global collaboration to do things differently uh, so that we can have healthy adult survivors, not just surviving, but thriving after they've been treated. Would it be fair to uh, sort of summarize that as building on what you already know and figuring out what we don't yet know uh, about pediatric blood cancer? And, and, And getting people giving the impetus for everyone to work together. You know, pediatric cancers, thankfully, are rarer than adult cancers. And so we need, we can't, no center can do it alone. We need everyone to collaborate and work together and learn from each other. And LLS is the organization that can bring that together and make it happen. And that's our goal for Dare to Dream. Again, Dr. Gwen Nichols is Chief Medical Officer for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Uh, Courtney Addison, again, the mother of a pediatric cancer survivor and a patient advocate uh, and family advocate. Where do we get more information? Well, please contact lls.org to learn all about the resources that we have And for people who are going through this right now or who need support, please feel free to get talk to our free information resource center. The number is 1-800-955-4572. We're here to help. We will link up those resources on our webpage as well. Ladies, thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. Kind of a light day for the uh, broken news. Uh, apparently, with the holiday weekend, people, for the most part, took a break from their uh, nonsense. That's not to say that everyone did, however. In Hillsboro, Florida... A uh, home was destroyed on the 4th of July after the owner discarded some used fireworks in a cardboard box in his garage. Now, can you see what's wrong with this plan? <laughs> uh, firefighters believe the fire originated in the garage and the heat of the used fireworks that hadn't fully cooled was the likely cause of the blaze. Duh. I mean, really, you think that's a good idea to take the you know, used uh, fireworks and put them in a cardboard box and put them in your home? Fortunately, no one was hurt in the incident. Firefighters were also able to protect the neighbors' homes from being torched as well. So. <laughs> Man. Uh, let's see. 
Elsewhere in the uh, broken news, just a couple of other items, actually. Um, a woman in Ireland has lost... You know, we talk about how litigious Americans are, it seems. I mean, we will sue someone at the drop of a hat. I think it's because people are after... I mean, they, they think it's easy money and just sue someone. Um, but it doesn't always work out. And we're not the only ones who suffer from this syndrome. A woman in Ireland has lost a personal injury lawsuit that she filed after claiming a child running amok in a grocery store caused her great bodily harm when the aforementioned youngster crashed into her. Problem is, security camera footage of the incident was played during her trial, and it showed that not only was she lying about the kid slamming into her and knocking her down, she was the one who stuck out her foot and tripped the kid. <laughs> uh, this uh, 40-year-old woman uh, from uh, Dublin filed a $61,000 lawsuit against the Lidl's grocery store in September of 2017. So this has been going on for a while. She claimed at the time that a nine-year-old boy caused her fall. She added that the fall caused her terrible pain because she was pregnant at the time and she fell in a way to protect her unborn child. And that uh, meant that she landed at an awkward angle and, and hurt herself even worse. She further accused the staff of the store of watching the child run around and not doing anything about it. Well, she finally had her day in court, and the security camera footage taken during the incident was, was played and proved that she made the whole thing up. It was actually the child who went tumbling after she tripped him. And uh, then she laid on the ground and reenacted a life alert commercial. <laughs> Ended up getting carted off to the hospital because nobody actually saw it happen, so they had to go back to the security tape. After uh, viewing the, uh, the recording, the judge promptly dismissed the case. And not only that, he ordered the woman to pay the grocery store's court costs. So, <laughs> didn't quite work out the way she expected it to there. And finally, in the uh, broken news this morning, I, I said it's, uh, it's kind of a light day for the broken news. Not a whole lot going on here. Quality over quantity, I guess, here. This is, back in this country, the plague, and this has to do with travel, uh, because a lot of people are traveling over the weekend, so this uh, kind of ties into that. Um, the plague of fake service animals has now <laughs> reached a new low. A woman flying to Hartford, Connecticut, um, and I'm not sure where she was flying from. It was a Delta flight. Um, and it was uh, to Hartford. Was it from New York or was it from? Anyway, a woman flying to Hartford was gobbling mad after her flight was held up all because a passenger insisted that they needed their emotional support turkey. <laughs> uh, L. Duncan tweeted out about the incident on Monday saying, my flight is being held up because a woman has an emotional support turkey on the plane and they're not sure if that's allowed. 
She goes on to say, you can't make this stuff up. After a two-hour delay, she uh, updated the situation, uh, explaining what Delta decided to do about the service animal, uh, saying that uh, apparently she can go to Hartford with the turkey, and then that's it. She can't. She, apparently, she was connecting to another flight someplace else, and they said, well, we'll take you to uh, Hartford, but then you're on your own. Three minutes later, Ms. Duncan explained why this turkey was doing more than ruffling her feathers. She said, I want to get a picture. She's in row 39 and I'm in row three. And I'm on working on two hours sleep. So I'm going to sprint off this airplane. And uh, y'all have to believe that a woman brought a turkey on the plane. Yes. Um, the, the problem is that emotional support turkeys are not allowed uh, on airplanes, Delta banned emotional support animals, uh, pretty much of all kinds, uh, back in 2021. Emotional support animals do not qualify as service animals under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And because there were so many issues with people taking unusual and exotic animals, trying to take them on the plane with them, they just said, enough of this, we're going to ban them all. Um, and uh, <laughs> the... Uh, uh, Twitter users who responded to this whole uh, thing basically uh, are theorizing that on the 4th of July, with so many people flying and the staff, I mean, the airlines have been short staffed. And so people have been working extra hours and all of that. They theorized that, in, that at one point the employees were so burnt out that they took one look at the turkey and decided it ain't worth it. I don't want any part of this fight. Just take your turkey on board. And that's but <laughs> the feel for the employees of the airlines and everything they have to deal with. There you go. Uh, that is today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Mm -mm. Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. <sighs> Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Uh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. This message provided by WFIN. Time now for your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. The folks at Gallup do this poll every year, and uh, it, it's something that we talk about every time they issue the results because I think it's interesting, especially this trend that we have been on of late. But this new poll finds that Americans' trust in U.S. institutions is now at a record low. Uh, only 27% overall, only 27% on average, have a great deal of confidence in any of the major American institutions. That is a 5% decline from last year and the lowest overall number since 1979. So think about that. That's a long time ago. Now, probably not surprisingly, there were sharp declines in trust when it comes to the three branches of government. Trust in the presidency, for example, was only at 23% in 
and that is 15% lower than it was just last year. Obviously, that reflects the low approval rating for President Biden's job and all of the headwinds that he has faced, some of which certainly are his own doing, some beyond his control, but still 23% trust in the presidency is down 15% just from last year. Trust in the Supreme Court hit a record low of 25%, and confidence in Congress was down to 7%. That is the lowest of all of the 16 institutions they asked about. Of all of the institutions, Congress is the least trusted at just 7%. The survey found confidence declined significantly, and this is where, again, the politics side of that, probably not particularly surprising. Um, But this is where it gets interesting The survey found confidence declined significantly for 11 of the 16 institutions that they specifically ask about from last year to this year, including a significant decline in confidence in the criminal justice system, the police, the medical system, and public schools. The poll also found Americans had the most trust in small business, the military, and the police, but again, confidence still declined for for all of them from last year. But at the top of the list, small businesses, the military, and the police. But everything was down. Factors that contributed to the decline of Americans' faith in major institutions, because they ask about that too, what caused you to feel that way, include the COVID-19 pandemic, the way that was handled, partisan gridlock in Congress, uh, and then other things that were cited the Great Recession, and we've been out of that for a while. Maybe they're ascribing that descriptor to the state of the economy today. I'm not sure, but the Great Recession was what people said. And the Iraq War, and I would assume the withdrawal from the Middle East, uh, which was so terribly botched uh, over the course of the past year and all of the news surrounding that, I, I would guess is more what they're talking about there. But those were the factors that people in the survey cited uh, as diminishing their faith in major institutions. So some interesting data there on Americans' trust or lack thereof in the institutions, not just of government, but in the institutions that we rely on every day. Well, as Americans are traveling again, people are more adventurous than ever, and that opens up new opportunities for creative hosts with unique spaces to share. Now, Airbnb is helping those with an awe-inspiring idea to bring their vision to life with a $10 million fund. And joining us now to talk uh, more about the OMG Fund and her experience being the host of the Big Idaho Potato Hotel is Christy Wolf. First of all, what is the Big Idaho Potato Hotel? Tell us a little bit about this. Yes, it's a six-ton potato on the outskirts of Boise where we have a Jersey cow and about 400 acres of farmland surrounding it. It was actually a promotional potato that the Idaho Potato Commission 
puts on the back of a semi truck and travels all around the country with it. And I was a spokesperson on that tour for a couple years. And I actually took my earnings from the first tour and built my very first Airbnb about eight years ago in Hawaii, which was a treehouse. And then years later, the Idaho Potato Commission upgraded uh, their potato to a more roadworthy fiberglass one. And they actually <laughs> gifted me the old one. And I was able to make it into an Airbnb listing. <laughs> so uh, what makes these kind of one-of-a-kind unique stays, uh, unique properties, so increasingly appealing to travelers? I mean, certainly uh, you have found that to be true. Why? What's the attraction in your opinion? When people stay somewhere unique, the home actually becomes the destination versus the location. I've been doing it full-time for about eight years now, and I have fully booked calendars, and I think just the Airbnb platform is making them easier to find, and as people discover them, I just think they're so much fun, and and people are looking for more of them. Do you find that people are willing to maybe uh, visit a place that they wouldn't have ordinarily considered simply because of uh, the unique uh, uniqueness of the uh, of the uh, location to to stay. I mean, a treehouse in Hawaii yeah. is a pretty easy sell, I would think. Is it? Right. Is it well, just? I also have a. I also have a fire lookout, an old retired fire lookout in the Panhandle of Idaho, where the nearest airport is three hours. So you're looking at a three hour drive yeah. to a, a town where there's about four hundred people. Yeah, literally see, zero tourism there. <laughs> yeah. And see. We are Book. Yeah, and and see that's the that's the thing that I think is interesting because obviously that would be a more difficult thing I would think and and certainly uh, uh, big Idaho Potato Hotel is not near any sort of uh, resort or anything like that. So, but at the same time, you still see solid bookings uh, all the time. Yeah, absolutely. People are really like looking for that adventure with the lookout in the six months for the winter time. We take guests up in a vintage snowcat, so. It's it's all just a complete experience hmm. versus typically when you would just be finding a place to sleep for yeah. the night. Yeah. Uh, now, as we mentioned, Airbnb has recently launched what they call the OMG Fund to support hosts such as yours with some of the craziest, for lack of a better term, craziest property ideas. Uh, tell us about this. This is really exciting. So the OMG Fund is a $10 million fund. And Airbnb is calling creative people from around the globe to submit their ideas for these crazy spaces. We're going to select a hundred applicants and give them a hundred thousand dollars to create those crazy listing ideas. And I actually get to be one of the judges. So we're looking for really original ideas, ones that provide a great guest experience, but they also have to be feasible. So thinking out of the box, uh, as it were, is quite literally uh, the the goal here. And again, uh, as we were saying, you don't have to be near a resort town or at a uh, traditional vacation spot. These could be pretty much anywhere, right? Exactly. And it actually makes it a really great business model because there is, contrary to popular belief, still some cheap land out there. You just have to maybe be a little bit further out than uh, than you thought, but 
with my places, they're all pretty much remote. And uh, again, we're fully booked on all of them. Hmm. So where would someone interested in learning more about the OMG fund go to learn more about how to, you know, maybe find, uh, maybe find funding for their uh, dream or their crazy idea? They can head over to airbnb.com backslash OMG fund, and the application is open through July 22nd. And by this fall, we'll have selected those 100 applicants, and they'll be getting that $100,000 to start building their dream. That is awesome. And let me ask you this, uh, for those who are you know planning a summer vacation or maybe even looking forward to uh, autumn or even winter getaways now, what is your advice for seeking out and deciding on one of these, uh, let's say, extraordinary uh, types of uh, locations for a getaway? What's the, the secret to finding one that uh, will work for, for you? Airbnb has this excellent feature called flexible bookings. And so you can even say like, hey, I'm looking to go somewhere. I don't really care where in between September 1st and the 15th. Show me what you got. Show me these unique listings. There's a whole OMG category. Okay. You can also search by castle or yurt or earth home. So um, it's really fun to just play around and see what's near you. Or if you're willing to go far, you can do that too. And who knows, uh, your next adventure of a lifetime may be at the Big Idaho Potato Hotel. Uh, Christy Wolf is uh, with us this morning. Again, let's mention the uh, website for more information on how to uh, learn more about the OMG fund for uh, would-be hosts. Yes, it's airbnb.com backslash OMG fund, and you have until July 22nd. Christy, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage, and that is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, a new policy took effect the first of this month that dramatically impacts the way medical debt affects your credit score. So what does that mean for both consumers and creditors? Until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.